Our reading this morning is from Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And then there's one verse in chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Imagine a light at the end of the tunnel. You're trudging through the dark, trying to get to the end of the tunnel. The light gives you hope, doesn't it? While you're walking through the darkness, the light that you can see drives you forward, encourages you, inspires you to move forward. Today we're looking at what happens at the end of the world. It's often called the apocalypse, the last days, the second coming, Jesus' return. Thinking about the end of everything is a bit like seeing a light at the end of the tunnel but also having lots of questions about it. You might have lots of questions about the end of the world. There is lots of speculation about what will happen. Hollywood movies, for example, show us many false ideas about the end of the world, like these Left Behind movies, which say that all the Christians will be raptured up into heaven, leaving their clothes behind. And there are many interpretations of what the Bible says will happen. God tells us in his word some things about the end of the world, but not everything. And what God tells us in his word about the end of the world can sometimes be hard to understand and hard to accept. The Apostles' Creed summarizes what Christians believe about the end of the world. The last two phrases of the creed are the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. What happens after Jesus returns? There are heaps of things to talk about in terms of Jesus' return, like when it will happen and what about the signs that might occur beforehand, but we don't have time to look at those. Today we're focusing on the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We're going to use the Bible to investigate what those things mean. We're going to ask who 
and what, and when, where, how, and so what? And we're going to find our answers in Scripture. We may not feel like they are full answers, but we can be certain of the truth of God's Word. Let's pray that God will help us understand His Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your Word. Please help us to understand what you're saying. May you help us to look forward to being with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an outline in the news sheet that Luke sent out in the WhatsApp group, if you'd like to follow along. And I will have most of the Bible passages for you to see on the screen. Our first phrase is the resurrection of the body. When we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body... What are we claiming to believe? Let's consider three questions. When will the resurrection of the body happen? What is it referring to? And how will the resurrection of the body impact us? We start to find the answers to the first two questions in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. The Christians in Thessalonica were concerned about what would happen to their brothers and sisters who had died. And Paul reassured them about what will happen at the end of the world. See if you can spot the answers to our first two questions as we read these four verses together. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, that's Jesus, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So when will the resurrection of the body take place? The answer to that is in verse 16, isn't it? When Jesus comes down from heaven, when Jesus returns. Not now, but when Jesus returns. When, what exactly will happen? The beginning of verse 14 starts to paint a picture. Those who have fallen asleep will come with Jesus. The end of verse 16 continues that picture. The dead in Christ will rise. And then after that, verse 17, the living in Christ will be caught up. So the saints coming with Jesus, the dead rising, and the living being caught up. If that didn't make much sense to you, that's probably normal. It seems like Paul is describing three actions, one from heaven and two from earth. And it makes a bit more sense if we read fallen asleep the same as dead. The biblical writers sometimes use the phrase fallen asleep the same as dead. That means two of the actions are describing believers who have passed away. They're both coming with Jesus and being raised from the dead. Now, we don't have time to discuss what happens after people die, but this passage seems to imply that there will be a reunion of the believers who were with Jesus and their bodies from the earth. Some people look at this as a reunion of soul 
and body. We don't know whether Paul was explaining something literally or just painting a picture of what will happen. We can be certain from this passage that when Jesus returns, he will draw all believers to himself, whether they are living or fallen asleep. However it works, Jesus will gather his people to himself when he returns. But this gathering isn't the full picture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the famous passage where Paul explains more about the resurrection, he says that we will all be changed. If we put the pieces of the two passages together, we can see more of a picture. When Jesus returns, he will gather all his people to himself and they will be changed, not replaced, changed, renewed. So when Jesus returns, what will happen? He will gather all believers, whether living or dead, and they will be changed. That leads us to our third question, how will the change impact our bodies? The short answer is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We will be like him, that is, Jesus. Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, saying that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, the initial model that we will all be patterned after. It's a bit like the way a factory produces a cookie cutter. It's the original shape. You use it to make cookies in the same pattern as the original. Your cookies will look very similar to the original model, but your cookies will never be exactly the same as the original. The cookie dough may not go all the way to the edges, they may go over the edges. Like the cookie cutter is the initial model that all cookies will be patterned after, Jesus' resurrection is the initial model that our resurrection will be patterned after. So much of what was true of Jesus' resurrection body will be true of our resurrection bodies. Jesus was not immediately recognisable by his disciples when he first appeared, but full recognition always came. Like Jesus, our bodies will be similar, yet changed. Jesus had a physical body which could be touched by Thomas and needed food to nourish it, but could also go through walls. Like Jesus, our bodies will be similar, yet changed. Paul uses words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to describe the change in our resurrection bodies. Here they are in the table. Imperishable, in glory, in power and spiritual. As our bodies now perish, they break down. So our changed bodies then will be imperishable. They will never break down. As our bodies now are dishonourable, they are imperfect. So our changed bodies then will be glorious. Like Jesus' face was radiant at the transfiguration, our changed bodies might be similarly radiant. As our bodies now are weak, they get tired, so our changed bodies then will be powerful, strong. Not superhero strong, but sufficiently strong to serve the Lord. As our bodies now are natural, fleshly to do with our sin, so our changed bodies then will be spiritual, spirit-filled, in sync with who the Holy Spirit is, and what the Holy Spirit does. 
These four words don't give us a detailed diagram of what our bodies will look like, but they do describe enough of a picture for us to long for them. We don't know exactly what they'll be like, but we know something. They will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. So how will our bodies be changed? They will be like Jesus' resurrection body, similar to our bodies now, yet changed. So we've investigated what the resurrection of the body is referring to, when it takes place, and how that change will impact us. But what does that mean for us now? So what? Knowing that when Jesus returns, we will be raised or caught up, our bodies gloriously changed gives us a certain hope, a light at the end of the tunnel, a hope of resurrection bodies. As our bodies now get older and start to break, begin to break down, we hope all the more for imperishable bodies. As our bodies now bear the marks of old age, we hope all the more for glorious bodies. For those of us with chronically fatigued bodies, being tired all the time and not knowing why, we hope all the more for strong bodies. As our bodies now carry the disease of sin, we hope all the more for spiritual bodies. I'm only 30 years old and my body aches sometimes and feels tired. I would love to have a better body. And those of you more mature than me know this more than me, I'm sure. We hope for better bodies. So what does it mean for our bodies now? Does it matter what I do with my body? Can I say I'm going to get a resurrection body so nothing I do to this body matters? A license for neglect, to abuse it with sex, with food, with drink. The Corinthian church was like this. They believed that their bodies would be destroyed, giving them the freedom to do anything they wanted with their bodies. They committed sexual sin, ate and drank whatever they wanted to. But Paul rebuked them with the reminder that Jesus had bought them by his sacrifice. See it with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. If Jesus' sacrifice has bought us for God, should we not serve God with our bodies? Honour him? If you do not look after your body well, are you honouring Jesus' sacrifice for you? If you do not look after your body well, can you serve God for all the years of your life? If you do not look after your body well, can you care for the people God has given you? If we are to honour God with our bodies, then we must be appropriately responsible for our bodies. On the other hand, should we try and perfect our bodies now? Can you say, this body is all I've got, so I've got to make it perfect and last as long as possible? A pursuit of perfection, maybe with plastic surgery, maybe getting buff at the gym for vanity's sake, seeking immortality through medical improvement. All of those things are not bad in and of themselves. Plastic surgery can prevent other medical problems. Bodily training, Paul tells us, is of some value. And healthcare is immensely helpful. 
But when we make these things our highest priority, we do not appreciate God's great promise of bodily renewal. Be thankful for the body God has given you now, yet long for the perfected body God has promised. Be thankful for the many years God has given your body, yet long for the eternal body God has promised. Be like Paul, who was torn between the life now and the life to come, saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we are to use our bodies for God's service, then we must be appropriately responsible for our bodies. We are not to do whatever we want with our bodies. We are not to try and perfect our bodies now. We have a wonderful hope that when Jesus returns, our bodies will be gloriously changed, a light at the end of the tunnel. So we need to be appropriately responsible with our bodies as we serve God with them. Our second phrase is the life everlasting. When we say that we believe in the life everlasting, what are we claiming to believe? Let's consider three questions. Where will the life everlasting happen? To whom does it occur? And what does it mean to have eternal life? As a result of Jesus' return, we will have everlasting life. But where? Revelation 21, the passage Lynn read for us, describes where our everlasting life will take place, in the new heavens and the new earth. Read it with me, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So that's where our everlasting life takes place in a new heaven and a new earth. We often talk about heaven by itself, but scripture talks about both a new heaven and a new earth. And even though this apocalyptic language is often metaphorical, I think there is a sense that this new heaven and new earth will be a physical reality. If we have some sort of physical bodies, as we talked about earlier, our physical bodies will need a physical place to exist in. I don't think it'll feel exactly like our physical reality now, but it will be physical in some way. And it will be amazingly beautiful. A description of the holy city is in chapter 21, verses 9 to 27. It paints a picture of jewels, of angels, of gold measuring rods, of immensely big structures, of gold streets. Make sure you have a read yourself. And imagine how beautiful it will be in a physical, renewed heaven and earth where our everlasting life takes place. Let's now consider the who and the what of everlasting life. We're going to see a divide between believers and unbelievers. Firstly, see what everlasting life looks like for believers in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 to 7. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So God's people will dwell, will live intimately with their God. God's dwelling place, his home, is with his people. What the whole story of the Bible has been building to ever since sin entered the world is now here. It will finally happen in all its fullness. God will be with his people intimately. Believers will be with God. And being with God will give us perfect contentment. In this life, without being with God fully, we cry, we die, we mourn, we hurt. But in the life to come, being with God fully, we will never cry again. We will never die. We will never mourn again. We will never hurt again. Being with God will satisfy us in all fullness. But we also need to look at the other side of the coin, to what everlasting life looks like for the unbeliever. See it with me in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. What a horrible picture. The reality reality of life under God's judgment, away from God's blessing. We should be shocked at the idea of this. But as it is part of God's word, we can't ignore it. We can't say that it won't be true. Some people have misinterpreted what this eternal life away from God will be like. They say that unbelievers will just cease to exist. But Jesus himself said that the righteous will go to eternal life and the others will go to eternal punishment. Those who choose not to believe in Jesus, who choose to continue life under their own authority, this is what awaits them. So what will everlasting life look like for the believer and the unbeliever? Those in Christ will be with God in contentment. Those who have refused Christ will be away from God in punishment. So we should feel both joy and sorrow, knowing about the everlasting fates of both believers and unbelievers. It is right for us who are safe in Christ to joyously long for everlasting life with God. But it is also right for us, if we love the unbelievers around us, to feel deep sorrow for their eternal fate. One does not cancel out the other. On the one hand, longing with joy for life with God does not give us permission to ignore the fate of unbelievers or to proclaim it rudely. But on the other hand, feeling sorry for the eternal punishment of unbelievers does not take away from the hope we have. We should not suppress our hope 
in fear of offending others. We should feel both joy and sorrow. One does not cancel out the other. So, we should get keen for life with God. It is a hope that should brighten our days. I really enjoy imagining getting to know God better in all his inexhaustibility. And I look forward to that relationship deepening more and more without end. I'm really keen for that. So we should let our hope drive us to get through the struggle of life here on earth. But we should also be weighed down with sadness for those who won't be with God. It is a sadness that should darken our days. I think of those who are close to me who don't share my hope and that weighs me down. So we need to let our sadness drive us to love our unbelieving friends and family. Let them see your hope as you live for Christ. Gently share your hope with the story of Christ and pray for them that they might share your hope. For we do have a wonderful hope that when Jesus returns, we will live with God forever in contentment. It's a light at the end of this tunnel of life. Yet we also have a sadness for what awaits those who refuse Jesus, being away from God. We started by thinking about a light at the end of the tunnel. When Jesus returns at the end of the world, there is hope, glorious bodies, and eternal life with God. We have certainty of this because it is in God's word. And we have a responsibility to honour God with our bodies in great hope for our renewed bodies. And knowing what everlasting life looks like for both the believer and the unbeliever should fill us with both joy and sorrow. That joy should drive us to live our lives in this world. And that sorrow should drive us to love our unbelieving friends and family. Yet most importantly, we must pray for this hope to be fulfilled, for Jesus to return. As Revelation chapter 22, verse 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May our hope of glorious bodies and eternal life with God be fulfilled. Come, Lord Jesus.